Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and redesigning the redesign. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing really good, Joe. How are you doing? Oh, doing pretty good. I have kind of a weird ergonomic update before we dive into our project updates. Please. So at the suggestion of friend of the show, Josh, I decided to check out the roller mouse. And I've kind of looked at these before and dismissed them as weird. And they are weird. It's um, quite possibly the strangest mouse I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Like if you ask somebody on a Star Trek set to design a weird alien input system, I'm sure they could have come up with this. <laughs> they still wouldn't have come up with this because it's just too weird. Honestly, I had to stare at the the first time I looked at it, I had to stare at the at the pictures for minutes. Just mm-hmm. going, how? Yeah, how do you Yeah, it's pretty strange. So I, I decided to get one, at least try one for a while. Um they're not cheap. They're I got the free three, which is kind of I don't know, out of the, out of the ones I looked at in terms of hand size, this is the one that their little diagram pointed me towards. And it's like it's very high quality. I think it was around 250 bucks. Um, mm-hmm. but it's not something that's gonna fall apart. You know, it's very nicely made and it's surprisingly precise. And the buttons are kind of the worst part about it, but you can do regular clicking with the scroll bar itself. Um, that's not really good for double clicking, but it is good for like drag selection, marquee selection, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also has a left click and a right click button and a double click button, which is actually kind of nice. And some other stuff that don't work because I'm running Catalina and the <laughs> software they ship with it doesn't work yet. So, um, but it's definitely weird. I, it took me a couple of days to try to try using it in different positions and, I don't know. It's I still haven't really settled on whether or not I'm going to keep it. Um, it's also hard to tell if it's doing any good because I've already been in so much pain the last couple of weeks. It's hard to tell like when like I've only, I've used this every day since it arrived on Tuesday. I haven't had anything else on the desk, but it's hard to tell if this is doing anything different because the pain hasn't really gotten any worse or better. Um, but there are definitely some caveats to it. Like I can't, it's basically got a huge built-in wrist rest and I can't use a wrist rest because that hurts. So I've had to kind of use it in standing mode where I tend to just kind of reach over the thing a lot easier than when I'm sitting. Um, I also have some risers for the keyboard, but they weren't risey enough for my keyboard. So I have kind of a weird wedge under the front of the keyboard to get it out of the way so that I can actually reach the keyboard without touching the wrist rest. So it's definitely weird. But the good thing about it is because the mouse isn't on the right side, I can use a full-size keyboard again instead of a 10 keyless. And it's not that I don't like full-size keyboards, it's that I typically don't use them because having them with a mouse to the side makes me reach way too far over. Like, I'm I'm not that wide of a person. Um, <laughs> like, I'm... A full-size keyboard is wider than I am, if that puts it in perspective, which yeah, sounds kind of weird. But. 
I'm about 60% wider than Joe. So yeah, I, I am a 10 keyless Joe. But uh, I can use my Logitech keyboard again, which is my favorite one out of everything I've tried. And uh, I don't know, I'm getting used to it. It definitely took a couple of days of like, okay, this is weird. Just moving the mouse is weird, but I'm kind of over that part and getting more precise with it and you know, played with the tracking speed and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I guess it kind of remains to be seen whether or not it sticks around. I'm going to give it a couple of weeks and uh, I mean, I'm leaning towards it. Like I haven't, I haven't gotten frustrated with it and shoved it off the desk. Like I've kept it out the right. entire week and haven't used anything else. So I think that's a good sign. But we'll see if it helps with any of the issues I have. It definitely doesn't help with pronation stuff. We're basically keeping your arm turned down to use a mouse or a trackpad. Mm -hmm. um, where like a vertical mouse will definitely help with that, but that has other problems. So it would be nice if I could just get robotic hands or <laughs> use a computer with my mind or... Yeah, I'm, I'm so waiting for cyborging. I, I think I'm going to be... Not like a, an early adopter, but I'm not mm -hmm. opposed to the concept. I just understand technology and don't want to be the first one because the first robotic brain interface is going to suck. Yeah. But later ones, I'm, I'm all up for it. Um, I tried out the roller mouse a couple years ago. And yeah, it's a little expensive. I've kind of made peace with that, <clears throat> with the fact that... Um, it's less expensive than not being able to work because I'm in pain. Mm -hmm. And so to a certain degree, if it's a mouse that does everything that I need and it keeps me in good form, I'll, I'd pay a thousand dollars for it. If it was great. Mm -hmm. um, the 30 day trial program that they've got is great. You get that through their website, not through like Amazon or something like that. And they'll just, you know, you chat with them. They'll help you pick out the one that's right for your kind of use case, whether you're a traveler or not. And then they'll just ship you one. And if you've still got it a month later, they charge you for it. Mm -hmm. Kind of it, which is great. Um, the biggest difficulty that I had with it is I don't actually touch type. I don't keep my hands properly centered on like the home keys. Mm -hmm. And the mousing was fantastic, but what ended up happening is my thumbs drift. My hands rotate all over the place as I'm typing. It's It drives touch typists mad watching me do it. Um, but what it means is that as I'm using the mouse and, and doing things and typing, my thumbs don't end up in the right spot for hitting the trackball or hitting the, the mouse buttons. And so I end up having to look to find the mouse buttons. And like, I'll, I'll go to tap a mouse button and there's no button under my thumb. <laughs> and so, or, or the wrong button under my thumb, which is actually a little worse. Yeah. And so for my purposes, totally didn't work, but it didn't mean I wasn't impressed by the device. And I'm pretty sure it's the right device for some people. Just very much not me. Yeah, I think I use the the regular click on the scroll bar itself most of the time. 
So it's kind of, I can always tell where the roller bar is without looking. Finding the right click button, I do have to kind of look down to find that. But I'm guessing I could probably, because my keyboard has custom software, I could probably just map some function keys to left or right click, which might actually be kind of an interesting way to do that. Uh, I think you can just get there with a control click. Yeah, but I mean, an actual left click, being able to map a left click onto a keystroke. Oh, okay, gotcha. Interesting. I don't know if I've ever heard of anybody doing that. I'm sure it's possible. I think. I don't know. We'll see. But let me try that. Huh. I I think you just broke my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Keyboards are keyboards and mice are mice. And never the twain shall meet. Except for when they do. Yeah. So the only thing I don't like about it is this sound. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear that. That's the sound of the buttons that come with it. Yeah, they've got a fair amount of travel to them. It's a very, like, on-off click, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's just, I I had a meeting the other day and was listening back at the recording and, like, every every time I click the mouse, it's like this echoing, (laughs) awful sound, like, (laughs) shattering through the audio. Have I been doing that to people during the meeting? It's it doesn't sound as bad from this end. Hopefully. Anyway, that's enough of ergonomic update. What have you been working on? Beating my head against a wall again. Oh yeah? Yeah, it was kind of a frustrating week. Somewhere along the line I picked up a bit of a bit of a flu. Mm. Really minor. It it's we're talking like a, a weird like fifteen percent flu. So it's not enough to take me out of the running. It's just enough to be slightly distracting and annoying. Yeah. You know, I'm used to having allergies. So blowing my nose once an hour is just kind of standard. But, you know, now it's every 15 minutes. Not every 30 seconds like some debilitating (laughs) thing. But just enough to be a little extra obnoxious. And that's that just sucks. Um, and then I learned some new stuff, played with some, some more variations, but it was a, it was a real slog. And I I thought I was done with that. (laughs) Like I'd gotten back to productivity. Yay, productivity. And all of a sudden it's just like, oh, wait, no, this part's going to be slow again. Um, And I'll, I'll get more into that in a minute. And then there was also, for additional fun, I had some server hardware failures. Which had oh, me fun. like, oh, okay, let's go buy some replacement hardware and stuff like that. Because of raids and things of that nature, I haven't had any data loss yet. But it's all nerve-wracking and, oh, okay, let's jump on this now and... It's a whole brain state shift to move over into thinking about these other set of problems that I never, ever, ever want to deal with. Yeah, a software developer dealing with hardware problems. Yeah, and I'm really not a hardware guy. Like, just, just, I I can do it, but I'm not a hardware guy. Yeah, see uh, VR Hermit's thermal paste issues. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. 
Dave building his own VR machine. Mm, not so much. <laughs> so, uh, progress this week. I, I went back and kind of hacked around with variables a little bit. Um, I, I am understanding more about the way this parsing works. And as I was digging into building some unit tests for the variables, I realized that while what I had written would find variables, it didn't let me deconstruct them very well. Hmm. Which wasn't a huge issue until I started getting into um, uh, array accessing, you know, repeating variables. All of a sudden, I, I couldn't. I could find the variables, but I couldn't find the component parts very well. Which, to a certain degree, doesn't matter. Because for my purposes for FM comparison, I don't need to know. But it does really hurt my ability to unit test the thing. Like, there, there's this weird line where it needs... We talked about it before with, you know, I don't need this to be able to validate calculations. Mm-hmm. You know, I just need to be able to break down a pre-validated calculation into its component bits. But I want to make sure that I don't miss anything when I'm doing that. And so I'm a teensy bit overboard there just because I have to be able to account for every character. The parser will allow me to say, yeah, I don't care about these, just kind of ignore them. But I've got to do basic handling for every character in the thing, or I'm going to end up losing a character between the first version and the second version. And that's going to cause false positives to appear for differences. Hmm. And so in the process of making sure that I'm capturing every character, I want to be able to unit test that. And that required a little bit more detail in the parser than is strictly necessary. Um, so, and all of that, honestly, is just in preparation for finally nailing let and while. The two most complicated FileMaker standard calculation functions. So, um, true to form, I left the hardest, most complicated bit for last. And so as I'm messing with this and working with it, I, playing with these unit tests... I ended up making tests that weren't testing what I thought it, they were testing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you, you, you want a test that says, does A equal B? You know, I expected A, I got B. <clears throat> Are these the same? And effectively, what I ended up with were tests that were going, well, does A equal A? <laughs> and A always equals A. So, yeah, it's just, like, if I write 20 unit tests and then run the tests and they all pass, I did something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Like, maybe someday I'll be able to do that effectively. But right now, they absolutely should be generating more failures than that. And so, um, first it was just kind of poking at it and going, well, this test looks right. And it's basically, if you're doing a simple test of like, 
oh, I have a number, one, two, three. And I say, hand this to the number parser. Did I get back the number one, two, three? And the way things were structured, I was going to get back whatever I put into it. And so you shove in a string and get out a string. And it's like, ta-da, they match. Yeah, but I didn't really test anything there. So, yeah, making sure that I'm testing what I think I'm testing is one bit of the fun. Also bumped into my least favorite part of unit testing. Writing Mm. unit tests, as I've talked about in a couple of recent episodes, I really like the advantages I get from them. And so writing them, even though they're painful, I get it. And so it's just, no, 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 I'm going to do this, and this is going to be great. It's going to be worth the effort. And that lasts right up until the time when I need to make a substantive change to the structure of the code. Um, Like you were talking about a couple weeks ago with uh, changing the schema of your data storage stuff. Mm -hmm. I was doing something similar. Basically, when you're parsing these calculations, you get a tree structure where each element in the tree is tagged as a particular kind of element. And if I start renaming those things to make them more expressive and easier to pull data out of, I break dozens of unit tests at a time. Now, is this like, like with Xcode previews for SwiftUI, if you rename a view, your previews break, and you can't build the app until you fix the preview. Is that similar with unit tests? Uh, similar. So effectively, the unit tests are in a different, um, oh God, what, what do they call it? It's not a product, a different target. Okay. And so I can build the app when I've got broken unit tests. And I can build the unit tests... Well, no, not really, because the unit tests use the app, yeah. or at least portions of the app. So, but th- there's a little bit of flexibility there. So it's not like you have to stop, you break 20 unit tests and you have to fix them before you can write the next line of code. It's not like you're dealing with that necessarily. Correct. But I do need to fix the unit tests before I can really run any of the unit tests. And do the unit tests respond to like refactoring commands? Like if you change the name of a class in the project, does that update the name that you're referencing in the unit tests? If you use the refactoring tools, I think it does. Okay. The problem that I have is that the tests are using the code that is generated by Antler. Mm. But changing the antler source code yeah. isn't the kind of thing that causes that can that can be responded to as a refactoring change so those things become disconnected yeah sounds like you need to build a unit test builder using the <laughs> antler code as an input no joe <laughs> no um so i'm up to about 74 unit tests which is great. Really happy about it. But it literally is my least favorite part of unit testing is changing, knowing that I have to change something 
that's going to actually produce more work for me. Like, I don't just have to make the change. I now have to change a bunch of unit tests. The cool part is you press a button and you find out which unit tests are now broken. But the real question is, are they broken because of the change you just made? Or did the change you just made actually cause other problems? And so you don't just have to tweak the unit test necessarily. You have to reconfirm the unit test. Mm. Yeah. In, in the sense that I can probably tweak it until it passes, but I might end up with one of those circular unit tests again. I need to make sure that the new version of the test is testing the same thing as the old version of the test, even though the language has changed. So, yeah. Um, and, this, and this is why you never rename anything. Right. And if I could have done that, I would have. That's where you end up with, you know, FileMaker databases with 600 fields because they just add a new field every time they need instead of renaming something. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. Yeah. I'd rather deal with the pain of renaming than stuff like that. But yeah. I've, I've worked in systems where you can't rename fields. Mm-hmm. You just can't. You want to rename a field, you have to adjust the table definition, spawn a new table, import the data over, and and discard the old table. Mm-hmm. And that's how you rename a field. Yay. Um, and then I also bumped into, twice, my least favorite Visual Studio for Mac bug. Hmm. Um, when you're working in a multi-file application which when dealing with this kind of source code happens very very quickly you might have a data structure of some kind some struct or class defined in another file and when i if i rename a property of that class the name of that property when used in another file will highlight in red it's a little red dotted line underline. And that tells me that this is no longer matching. <clears throat> so I change it to match what I renamed the property to. And the little red underline goes away. And it's kind of a little pre-check. There's also stuff like in Xcode going on where it's doing maybe a little bit of pre-compiling to make sure that what you've just said is correct. And sometimes in a multi-file system, or a multi-file, multi-source file application. Visual Studio for Mac will stop properly updating whatever the database is in the background that knows what the names of everything are. Yeah. And so I start getting red underlines on words that are correct. And so I spent a bunch of time beating my head against it. Like, why isn't this happening? Because nine times out of 10, it's my fault. I messed something up. I named one of these properties using a uh, reserved word or something like that. And so I'm chasing down. Why is this happening? Whatever like that. And all it is, is this background thing didn't get updated. Yes, just force quit and relaunch it. Well, sometimes actually all I have to do is close the window for the source file. I'm usually editing in a tabbed editor setup. So it's really easy to just close a window and open it. But what it also means is that very often once I open a window or a tab, that tab is going to be open for the next week 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I saw something similar to this when I was working with Unity with Visual Studio for Mac. And I never had the renaming issue that you're describing because I always use the refactor tool for renaming. But I did occasionally, it would just, st like autocomplete would stop working. Like things that would recognize mm -hmm. or pull data from that index would just stop working pretty frequently, like several times a week. And yeah. just, it was always just time to quit and relaunch. Like it was just yeah. kind of buggy. Xcode lately has been doing something similar where it's not messing up the autocomplete. It just Xcode keyboard shortcuts just stop working. All of them. <laughs> they just break. And they all just make that beep sound. Like, nope. Nope. On a slightly related note, I think I have my first dead key on my laptop. Oh, nice. Yeah, my left command key doesn't appear to be working anymore. And it's you don't, not you like don't I use that. that. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time I'm working on an external keyboard, so it's fairly okay, but I get this, I'll, I'll just reach over to hit a key command and nope, not working. You just hit a W, not command W. You just edited your file. Um, so I, I'm not usually getting that video, Visual Studio problem a couple times a day. I'm getting it once every couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just because Visual Studio quits more often than that. And so that's partially fixing the problem. But I end up losing, honestly, an hour or two every time this happens. Because it's rare enough. You always forget about it. Yeah. it's <laughs> Most of the time, it's my fault. And so my first assumption is, oh, I must have screwed something up. This is exacerbated by the way that Antler interacts with Visual Studio, such that there are lots of places that I could have screwed up. And so I chase it around and around and around and around and around and around. And I'm like, no, this is, this is right. I, it, all of these things that I've tried can't be failing. Let me go ahead and just quit this, bring it back up. Hey, look, it works again. But now I've renamed like 20 different things. So it's like, Okay, let's do a little version control. Let's roll some stuff back. Let's try and put this back where it was. Okay, now, and we're still working. Okay, great. Now let's proceed. And that happened a couple times this week. And it's just, it's, once I've spent an hour or two beating my head against a problem that I never should have had in the first place, mm -hmm. it really does a number on my, on my inertia. Yeah, kind of makes my, you grumpy. Uh, yeah, it's really hard for me to go, okay, now let's get some work done. Very mm -hmm. often at the end of those, it's, okay, we're going to call this done for the day. And I, I'd really like to get some more done, but my brain is not in that space anymore. I'm just yeah. frustrated. No matter what I was doing before. Yeah. So frustrating week. Not a huge amount of fun. Um... Made some progress, not as much as I wanted. Looking forward to maybe getting some more done this week. Nice, hopefully. So, how was your week, Joe? So, pretty good, compared to that, anyway. <laughs> um, so, Xcode, so I guess on that, that topic of, like, a problem happening infrequently enough that you forget about it, 
there's something that I, it took me several times to learn the lesson from Xcode and Swift UI, but if you are writing a view and you are referencing, say, a property on a class that is optional, you can't use that as part of, even if you have like the class is set up with object binding or observable object, you can't use that optional in the binding result for control. You have to provide a nil coalescing operator for an alternative in case it doesn't unwrap. But Xcode will never tell you that. What will happen is you've got <laughs> a, a 200 line view. You enter a field like this and you get a red dot 40 lines away oh. about something else that Xcode doesn't understand. <laughs> and this this happened like a dozen times over the summer. And every time it came back to, I, I'm referencing a property that isn't optional. I need to provide a no-coalescing operator. So I just, every time I see any kind of red dot show up in Xcode, at least when I'm dealing with SwiftUI, my first thought, or the first thing I say out loud, out loud is, do you want some question marks? <laughs> and just give it some question marks. <laughs> like, does that help? Okay, no, let's try something else. Like it's just no coalescing operators everywhere as a first idea. I I always love those those unhelpful messages. Like mm -hmm. like that that message is so unhelpful. Um I, I told the story a long time ago, but it was the Back when I first started working in compiled languages, I was working in a language where if you missed a semicolon line ending, the compiler would generate an error, on, at least one, on every single line of code which followed that. Oh. So if you screwed it up on, say, the fourth line, and this was easy, you had a 300 line source file and you added a new property on line six and miss the semicolon line ending, you might get 1,100 error messages. Jeez. And you'd have to like scroll way back up to the top to go, okay, where was the first error message? Because that's probably close to where the problem is. Even then, it's a line or two later that started generating the problems. Um, we, The best term we came up with for it was compiler puke. The <laughs> compiler just puked all over yeah. you. Nice. Yeah, so the SwiftUI stuff has gotten better with recent versions of Xcode. Um, there's a blog post on the Swift blog, the actual language blog, about something they're changing. I forget exactly what the terminology was. It was like, it was one of those blog posts where I read about half of it. I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I, I, I recognize <laughs> these words from the dictionary, but I have no idea what I'm reading here. I just kind of closed it out of shame. <laughs> but that thing is going to make it better someday. And I'm just going to just wait for that to happen. Um, anyway, for my update this week, I spent a lot of time working on the design of the event side of the system, which is still pretty much the most lacking part of retrospective timelines. And... You know, kind of trying out some different things with the list view, how I want list rows to work, what type of data I want in the list. And that's been some time working on the detail stuff. So I guess with the list first, um, because I've got these 
list views backed by fetch result controllers from core data, I can pretty easily add some pretty awesome features like toggle sorting and maybe open a popover to check some boxes to apply some filtering, things like that. And I may even add sectioning into this and just automatically key path section the data by year so that as you're scrolling through, the year in which you're scrolling through will kind of pin to the top and show, okay, we're looking at data from 2017. And then as you scroll to 2016, 2016 will pin to the top. So I can do stuff like that. So like the, the skeletal structure of this is coming along nicely. I'm still not crazy about how I'm representing the rows. And the current version that I have built on the app on the application right now is basically just the name of the event, the date, because each of these rows is a date row, not an event row. Uh -huh. And then a little subtitle below the date of how long it's been since that date. And then there is an icon next to each one of these rows, a full circle for a single event, a half circle either opening or closing for start date and end dates, and also a closing half circle for the ongoing ones. And then I kind of use those same half circles during the data entry screen so the user can become familiar with them. Um, but I'm not sure that just having the date is enough. Like when you see a, a closing date and you just see, you know, the event name, a date, and the closing half circle... I'm not sure that that's enough. Like, do I need to put end date next to that? Do I, I, I've played around the idea of putting all of the date data in the cell. So having the start date and end date on the same line and then trying to maybe circle or underline or bold the date that this row is referring to. Mm -hmm. I played with different versions of that and it was kind of confusing. So I'm still like, I don't know kind of at a loss for what to do with the list rows. I've tried several things. I'm not crazy about any of them. Um, the one thing that I think I might do to make this easier to work with is add a little segment to control at the top to allow users to show event records or show date records. And the distinction between those is all dates are related to an event, but some events can only have one date. So all events have at least a value in the start date field. And from a user standpoint, that's either called the start date field or just the date field if it's a single event. So I thought about having some kind of toggle of like, just show me events or show me events broken out into dates and coming up with a way to communicate those. And I can actually rebuild that without actually going away. That, that doesn't have to be two different views that I'm navigating between. I'm just switching a property on the view that updates the fetch result controller fetch request predicate filter. That's a complicated thing to say. So, I don't know, any thoughts? Um, I like the idea of showing the whole, like both dates mm -hmm. and then like bolding the relative one or the relevant one. Um, I'm looking at the screenshots we haven't gotten to that yet have we no that's the detail okay. stuff. i'm i'm wondering if 
I am looking at that just to see the art again. I am wondering if to a certain degree now, if it wouldn't make sense to do the ongoing with a open circle. Okay. Um, just your, your circles are really nice and clean, but ongoing hasn't ended. And I kept trying to think of like, well, do we gray out the closed portion or something like that to indicate, I think you can actually get away with just an open circle. This okay. one's just ongoing. Um, but it's, that's just an idea. Um, and it's a tough problem. I, I wish I could give you a better answer. Yeah. It's a weird one. Because you're, you're that whole event date interrelation is just complicated. Like dates always are. Mm -hmm. And they make everything they touch complicated. Yeah. Even in simple versions. Um, you're trying to show elements of a range without connecting the two things directly. Like on screen. There's no line that connects these two things. They're just in a list. Mm -hmm. um, that's something else that I thought of. It's a, it takes a little bit more doing, but the the rows that have another related row to them, mm -hmm. um, I could, in theory, make it so that when you tap one of those rows, it kind of discloses the other record above or below it. And just kind of animate it in. It would kind of break the navigation a little bit because then you'd have to tap twice to get to the detail view. Hmm. But that's, that's definitely an option that I played with. It sounds neat, but I, I, I hear what you're saying about breaking the navigation. Like, I'm, I'm not yeah. a huge fan of select and select. Yeah, me neither. Could you get away with it with a little arrow button? Maybe. So you can like do the select. You can get to the detail in a single click. Yeah, if you look in the mail app on ios if you scroll through your mails until you find something that you have a thread of with multiple replies you'll see a little tiny disclosure carrot right in the accessory section and you can click that to disclose the other messages for that thread so something kind of like that mm -hmm. so i might i might try to make something like that i don't know it's tricky stuff so the list view not still not 100% sure what I'm doing. I've got a lot to figure out. <laughs> I think it's it's solid enough that I can start getting in the hands of people and asking them what they want. So I guess I need to keep working on the list view. The detail view is also something that I started making changes to yesterday and today. Up until now, I've had a detail view, which is a view-only version that you navigate to through the normal navigation and then an edit button on the detail view to open the edit modal to actually change the data. Mm -hmm. And I decided to combine those into one view, navigate straight to a form that has all the data and kind of use this as both. And there are two different versions of this that I have now. There's a, a blog post I wrote this morning on my website I'll link to with some screenshots. But one of them is using a segment to control to pick which type of end date you want. Do you have no end date? 
Do you have a date range or close date? Or do you have an ongoing ending date? And that's what I've been using the last couple of weeks. This morning I changed that around. In the second version, it's the, under the hood, it's the exact same data, but cosmetically I changed it. I moved it above the date fields mm -hmm. and called it event type and renamed the options single date, date range, or ongoing. And I think that's a little bit clearer. When you switch between those three, it's a little bit clearer what's happening. Like when you create an event, it just defaults a single date with a date section of the form below it with a full circle. If I change that to a date range, the date section changes from date to start date, the half circle shows up, and then another section shows up for the end date. So now you've got two date pickers and using the iconography consistently. And then same thing with the ongoing, I could switch that ending icon out with an empty circle. So yeah, what do you think between those two options of specifying event type or specifying the end date option? It seems like the, the new version is a little bit easier to explain. I dramatically prefer option two. Okay. By by a huge margin. Um the end date thing from the first version is just those options are weird. <laughs> the language <laughs> is funny. Like <clears throat> there may be a way to make that work. But this isn't yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, I could tell it was confusing when I was having a hard time explaining it to you on the phone. Right. So like, yeah, this is not ideal. Um, so I, I prefer the second one. I'm trying to figure out if the second one doesn't quite go far enough. Okay. By which I mean, I, I don't know what this looks like. I, I it, the thing I'm about to propose, um, and it may end up causing more problems than it solves. But well, that would that would be a first for this podcast. <laughs> Ongoing dates. I'm tempted to simplify. Simplified. I am tempted to simplify the event type picker into just two options. Okay. Because ongoing is a special kind of date range. And so I would say single date or date range and then have something down at the end date to clarify whether I'm saying this has a defined end date or this is ongoing. Like if you just cleared out the end date, you get a gray ongoing. But if you click in there and type, it becomes not ongoing. Well, there's, there is no click in and type to dates. And there's no way for a user using the stock date controls to not put a date. There's no way to select no date in a date picker. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 That's... no. Joe, Joe. We, we just need a blank date field. <laughs> there's... There's no way. No. Um, Th this isn't this isn't a date field. This is a date picker. This is this is not like a FileMaker field with a drop down calendar. But but I want a blank date, Joe. Too bad. 
a little button that you click that nope. says ongoing and just covers the date so it's not a date no that, that that's what i would have to do i'd have to add a separate control like a toggle switch to say no end date or ongoing mm-hmm. um and for the record i had it like this a couple weeks ago and you didn't like it yeah yeah i had i had two different switches i had a switch for single date or date range and then a, a second switch that would show up when you were had a, a date range selected for the end date. Okay. Well, I, I preface this by saying it may be a bad idea and the end result may be too messy or confusing. And maybe that's what happened. Yeah. Um. I mean, the the cool thing is I can, I don't have to change any of this at the schema level. I can, yeah. these controls can still just write to the view model and the view model can settle on whatever data it needs to save. So I can try different versions of it and... I mean, I could literally ship different versions of it in the test version and, you know, have users mm-hmm. check a box in the setting to try different input schemes. Yeah. Or just, just show them a different version every time they navigate. <laughs> yeah. As... Then maybe just a reordering? Single date, ongoing date range? That doesn't make any sense. No, but the thing is, I'm I'm gonna if I'm. I think my brain's just too obsessed with the ongoing things. Um, you wanted them. Yeah, I know. That's because I never end anything. Um, (laughs) they're all ongoing to me. Yeah, I mean, I could just take ongoing out of the equation for now, and just make it between single date and date range. Yeah, I. I like ongoing. I really do. And you've solved it data-wise. Mm-hmm. And this answer UI-wise is good. My brain's just trying to slice it up and see if I can find something just a teeny bit better. But <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, the only difference, like when you switch from a single date to an ongoing event type, the only difference is the end date section shows up and says ongoing with a little subtitle, automatically use the current date. But that's not a control. You don't yeah. tap on that to change anything. Um, the only difference between that and the end date is that ongoing row becomes a tappable date picker when you have a date range selected. Right. So I do need to visually distinguish that icon, maybe even get work, get rid of the... I don't know if I'd still want to use, like for ongoing event types, do I still use the terminology of start date and end date? It seems to make sense to me. Like the end date mm-hmm. is ongoing. Yeah, this is weird stuff. The the end date thing in the ongoing still looks clickable. Mm-hmm. It looks like an interactable UI element, which it isn't um yeah i mean to a i'm almost tempted then to pull that off like maybe just put like make that entire row just the you know end date will be oh god joe um okay how about this answer okay i like this 
good enough for release. <laughs> I I don't think you should spend a week trying to fix whatever weird little problem my brain is having here. Mm-hmm. I I think you should proceed with your app and get your app out. Because again, I, I like the second option so much more than the first. Yeah. I think you're basically there. And I, we're just doing little tiny nitpicks on this screen. And I think to a certain degree, it's excessive at this point. Yeah. I mean, so move if any, on. If I, if, I, if I do anything at all, I need to just distinguish the ongoing section a little bit from the end date section. And that's about it. Like just something visual to say this. these two are... They fill the same purpose, but they're different. This one's interactable and this one's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe something like that. Um, and the the open circle. And I think you're solid there. Cool. So one of the other things I played around with this weekend was adding some basic archiving to the system. And this is a pretty basic feature. Basically, it's only for timelines. So you can archive an entire timeline and all of its data. And what that means is a couple of things. It stops showing up on the main home screen. When you launch the app, you've got the list of reports at the top, like uh, on this day, perspective, that type of stuff. And then your list of your timeline lists below that. So it'll stop showing up there. You can go to the settings screen and there is a link to navigate to of a list of archived timelines to get them back. That's when you archive them, they will also stop showing up in those report views. So the all events or on this day, I'll just use a predicate to filter out anything that's been archived, but none of the data will be deleted. All the events will still be there. that be filtered out of those kind of queries. So I played around with different places for that. I had it as a separate section on the home screen for a while, but I didn't like it. It was just like, I don't want the first thing people see when they launch the app is like, here's where the trash goes. (laughs) (laughs) It just felt weird. Yeah. So I kind of tucked it into the settings for now. And then I think I'm going to be really lazy about this where initially I thought, you know, for the, the archive could just basically be a whole another version of the timelines and you're just dealing with archived data independently. But I don't even think that's going to be that detailed. I think it's going to be you go to where the archives are and you can delete them permanently or unarchive them. But you can't edit them. You can't navigate to the events from there. Yeah. You can put it back or you can get rid of it. I think just having that makes it a really simple feature. I concur. That's yes. The only thing I need to deal with about when I'm archiving or unarchiving is sorting order. Because the sort orders are custom for timelines. You, you you drag and drop your rows in the order that you want them. And I basically need to start keeping those numbers separately. They can still be in the same field. Like I'm just sorting by archived or unarchived. Because they'll never be in the same list. But when I archive something, I need to get the highest number of the archived records and add one. And vice versa when I'm unarchiving stuff. And then I think that's it. I can't think of anything else I need to do to get that working. I'm almost wondering if the, 
that'll work great until you've got about 15 archived lists. Mm -hmm. And then I think it should go alpha. Like if I'm trying to find an archived timeline, who knows where it was in the sort order at the time. Like you're basically doing like archive date, I suppose. So the most recently yeah. archived is at the top, which is good. Yeah. One or the other. The archiving feature kind of serves a dual purpose for me because it lets me continue to use the app for my data, but then still be able to archive my data, populate it with fake data for screenshots, and then archive that and put my data back. So it's kind of like the switcheroo. <laughs> okay. Just kind of a weird side effect. Like I can do screenshots in the simulator, but it's a lot it's a lot more of a pain in the butt to because the simulators don't sync unless I log into CloudKit and the simulator, which has got its own problems. So basically if I do screenshots in the simulators, I've got to launch the app, create all the initial data, and do it that way. Which I'm gonna have to do at some point for the app store screenshots, but trying to avoid it. So another quick topic would be just some overall design changes that I've made. Um, one is kind of using the bottom of the screen for some toolbar actions. And I only have a handful of these right now in the app. Um, previously, I had a little round circle with a white plus symbol in it for adding records on the list views. And I got rid of the circle and made it a solid purple icon. And you can see that on the list of timelines, on the list of events, there's also a plus button to add new events. And there's a sorting control on the other side of the screen. I'll probably have a filter button right next to that. Uh, maybe a share button in the middle, things like that. So I, kinda, I think I can comfortably get up to five buttons on that bottom area without taking up too much real estate. And then on the detail view, I can use it for sharing or for, I can even put, you know, deleting or archiving buttons down here. Kind of depends on what I need. So yeah, buttons everywhere. The, the other big change was the navigation on iPad. So I mentioned a couple of times over the last couple of weeks that when you use the iPad version of the app, Swift UI defaults navigation views to master detail for iPads. Mm -hmm. But the master detail mechanism is kind of broken. Like the, when you open an app that's using a master detail navigation in portrait mode on the iPad, you can't see a way to get back to the list view. You can swipe over from the left and show it, but there's no button there. There should be a back button there where there should be a button you can put there programmatically to kind of pop the stack, as it were, in UIKit terminology, but none of that's possible. It's just, it's completely broken. There's a number of bugs reported about this. Everybody knows about this. It's even in the Ray Winderlich course. <laughs> if, so, if Ray says it's busted, it's busted. Yeah. So the alternative is to use uh, stack navigation. So basically forcing the entire navigation view to act like it does on an iPhone where everything is a full screen view and you get rid of that master detail effect. And that works, but I end up with some really funny looking views when I'm in landscape mode where I've got tables where with a little bit of content on the left 
and a little bit of content on the right <laughs> and a huge <laughs> empty chasm in between. <laughs> so I've been playing around with different ways to try to fix this. There, These list views, unlike UI table, you, UI table just has an API called readable width where you can just specify, you know, about how wide should this thing be allowed to get. List in Swift UI doesn't have that yet. Um, I can fake it with setting a frame with a maximum width. And I played around with that. And I think that is probably going to be my best bet. But when I was playing with it last week, I was having issues with the the content behind it, the view behind it. I couldn't figure out how to change that color. So you'd end up with this really weird looking table view in the middle with this off color on the sides. So if I can, I might try to stick the entire thing into a Z stack and put a full screen view behind it to see if that can modify things to how I need them to be. But it's definitely a weird area. I don't think it's going to matter for people on an iPad mini. It may not even matter for people on a regular iPad, but on a 13 inch iPad pro, it looks <laughs> really bad <laughs> to see these giant rows. But I was looking at Twitter. Um, the Twitter app on iPad has the timeline content in a narrow column. It's not quite a third of the screen. Maybe it's 40, 45% of the screen. And the rest of it's just white space and a background color. And I think that's pretty much what I need to do with my list views. Just kind of keep them in the center. You know, keeping in mind that this is a, a workaround until they get master detail working right. someday. And then I can kind of switch it back. So yeah, this that's kind of been this entire project is like or anybody working with SwiftUI right now is like, what compromises are you prepared to deal with? Because you kind of have to you can't design a great app and then just implement it. You have to design around the rough edges of SwiftUI, which is you know, kind of sucks, but to be expected. <laughs> Sounds like lots of fun, Joe. Yeah, but on the other hand, I get to roll out brand new features that iOS apps have had for years in future updates. 